If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. Uh, the letter of 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning we are concluding uh, a six-month sermon series in this letter of 1 Peter. Uh, after this week, starting just next week, we're going to jump into the letter of 2 Peter. So we're just going to progress along through our New Testaments, uh, and we're going to spend our summer months studying uh, this second letter of Peter. Uh, and then in August, Lord willing, we're going to jump into at least a year-long series in the great book of Genesis. Uh, so we have a lot to look forward to as a church family in our study of God's Word. But for now, let us conclude our study in the letter of 1 Peter by looking at verses 12 to 14 of 1 Peter chapter 5. And church, as we read these together, let's never forget what a privilege this is. We, we are listening to the very words of God this morning. That is a remarkable privilege. That's an unspeakable joy that we get to sit under these words this morning. And so let's read these together with grateful and worshipful hearts as a as a church family. Peter begins his conclusion in verse 12. He says this, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Folks, we should probably begin our study of these verses by acknowledging that Peter did not live during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, before you start sending me texts with concern about how I would read a passage that encourages us to greet one another with a kiss of love and how that does not coincide with social distancing practices at all, uh, before you send me that text, let's just remember that this is very much a cultural practice of that day, and that we do not need to go and start kissing one another today as an application of this text. I'm actually pretty sure that in the circumstances, Peter might even encourage us to greet one another with an elbow bump of love or, or something like that. But folks, that actually raises a question about these verses for us this morning. Are these concluding verses of 1 Peter even important for us? When a New Testament like 1 Peter and many other in the New Testament, when they end with a bunch of, of, of farewell greetings to individual people and with a few expressions of affection to the church and maybe a few simple instructions as well, when we read these concluding verses in a letter, are we supposed to pay attention to them? Do they have importance for us as a church family in 2020? Well, the answer to that question is, is obviously a resounding yes, because every word of this letter, we believe, is God's word to us. It's, it's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for our lives this morning. And so we should pay very close attention even to these concluding words, because what Peter says here is actually a very clear summary of all that God has been speaking to us throughout the rest of the letter. These three verses serve as a powerful reminder to us of the hope that we have in Christ. As you know, the, the title of this entire sermon series has been Elect 
exiles from chapter 1, verse 1. Because throughout this letter, Peter has, has zeroed in on how the church, the church of Christ, exists in a foreign land. We are not home. This, this world is not where we belong. And even as we feel so misplaced in this world, even as we deal with difficulties and pain and disorder, even as we feel the weight of this world through sickness and, and division and through racial tension and through pandemics and through persecution against the church, even as we feel all of this, Peter has reminded us that we are in fact, as the people of God, being led and held by the very grace of God. Church, the letter of 1 Peter has told us in no uncertain terms that God himself through his victorious son, King Jesus, is standing with us in our trials today. He's by our side. Peter's acknowledged the pain. He's acknowledged the suffering. But because of the grace of God, he has preached hope to us again and again. And that is what we see even in these final three verses. Friends, the very simple but important and powerful main idea of this text this morning is this. God's grace is all that you need. And so remember it, stand firm in it, and unite around it. God's grace is all that you need in this life. And so remember it, stand firm in it, and unite around it. Around it, And that main idea actually serves as the structure for our message this morning. We're going to look at three ways to value and experience the, the grace of God in our lives, even as we deal with difficulty and sorrow. Point number one, remember God's grace. Point number two, stand firm in God's grace. And point number three, unite around God's grace. Okay, that's where we're headed this morning. Let's begin with point number one, remember God's grace. Look at verse 12 with me this morning. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So, so Peter begins his conclusion by, by acknowledging this man named Silvanus. Silvanus was very likely a good friend of Peter, a partner in the gospel with Peter, and he was likely the one that transcribed this letter for Peter. And he very likely was also the one who physically delivered this letter to the churches throughout the dispersion. And very likely, he also helped to instruct the churches through this letter. And so it makes sense that Peter would commend him as faithful. Peter wants his readers to know that this man who is delivering this letter to them is legitimately qualified to instruct them in these things. And then Peter speaks of the, the purpose of his writing. He's written through Silvanus in order, he says, to exhort and to declare these things to them. Folks, in all of this, we see that Peter has written to us with a very clear purpose, a very specific reason. Why does someone go through the trouble of writing a full letter like this? Why does someone choose someone who is faithful to go through the hard work and the expense and the time of delivering this to the churches? Why does someone feel the need to exhort or to declare? Folks, you do all of that when you want others to both understand and remember something of great importance. So, 
So in the letter of 2 Peter, which we're going to begin studying next week, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says this. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. This is why Peter exhorts and declares. This is why he sends Silvanus, so that we as the church of Christ, who are living in exile in a fallen world, might remember the grace of God. Why? Because if God's grace is all that we need, and we still live in a fallen and sin-sick world, we must remember this. And we need exhortation from people like Peter to remind us, because it's so easy to forget, isn't it? We love the grace of God, but Peter knows that we are naturally very forgetful people, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters. And when you add trials and sorrows and difficulties into your day, it becomes even easier to forget who we are in Christ. I was thinking about this, how, how easily we forget, and, and I liken it to, to me going to the grocery store to buy just a few things for my family. Like people, it's, it's really, really bad. Like the grocery list could even be just one or two things. But if, if Ashley doesn't text me that list and then text me repeatedly while I'm at the store and then maybe even call me while I'm checking out uh, at the counter, it is guaranteed that I'm leaving that store without what, for, without what I came for. It's, it's insane. I don't know why it is. Maybe it's the, the size of the store, the distractions all around me, but it all makes me forget the very simple list of things that I came for. I need help to remember. It's just the way my brain works. But folks, that's how all of our souls work when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is not a complicated thing. If it were a grocery list, it would not be that long. God's grace is simply that we have been made alive through the work of God the Son, who gave himself for us. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins and without hope, Christ came and died in our place. The gospel is as simple as believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and allowing him as king to now govern your life and to seek to live for him and for eternity. It's not a very long grocery list, but somehow we still forget it, don't we? This this world that we live in is is like a grocery store with its many different aisles and, and many different distractions all around us. And it can be so easy to be distracted by by the trials and by our own sin and by the messages coming from the world and from the culture around us. It can be so easy to forget what is of first importance, the main thing, the grace of God in the gospel through Jesus Christ. Friends, if God's grace is all that we need, and we have seen throughout 1 Peter that it absolutely is, then we should seek to cling to it. We must remember who we are as God's people. And now, folks, we can see wonderfully how how intentional Peter is to remind us of who we are and of the grace of God, both in this text and and throughout the whole letter. Notice a few things with me very briefly. Notice how these verses, verses 12 to 14, which are the conclusion of the letter, really reflect in detail the introduction to the letter up in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. So when we started this series back in December and we started talking about chapter 1, verse 1, we talked about 
the electing power of God's grace. Peter starts the whole letter by saying, to those who are elect or, or chosen exiles of the dispersion. He's, he's referencing there the electing grace of God in the gospel that, that we are only a part of his people today, that we're only members of the church, that we're only saved from our sins, not because of anything in us, not because we're better than those around us or more holy than they are, but because God has chosen us by his great grace and mercy to be his own people. That's what Peter told us in chapter 1, and he now ends the letter in exactly the same way as he speaks of the true grace of God. In verse 13, he speaks of she who is at Babylon. That's just another reference to a church in Rome who is likewise chosen, he says. He highlights the electing grace of God. Again, folks, Peter's whole letter is literally bookended by the electing grace of God. He doesn't want us to forget who we are. Peter also begins and ends with references to suffering. So we see it here in the use of the word Babylon in verse 13, which is a reference to, to painful and difficult circumstances. We'll talk about that more later. And then we see suffering again in the beginning with his use of the words exile and dispersion. And then he prays for peace for all in verse 14, which is exactly how he began in chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you see this? The introduction and the conclusion of this letter are marked by reminders of God's electing grace and the peace that can, that can bring to us in difficult circumstances. It's literally bookends to the book. Church, remember who you are this morning according to God's grace. Do not leave it behind. His grace is all that you have. It is the beginning of your life and it is the end of your life. And there's nothing else besides. This, this world just wants you to think about yourself in so many other ways. But as Christians, we are called to remember this first and foremost and, and never stop remembering this. Paul the Apostle says that the gospel... God's grace is of first importance. Church, this is why we need to work hard to remember God's grace together. This is why we must gather on Sunday mornings and not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. This is why we must read our Bibles. This is why we must memorize Scripture. This is why we must exhort one another every day, even as Peter does for us here. This is why we need fellowship groups. This is why we need to stay in contact. We're supposed to encourage one another to never forget the grace of God. We are forgetful people, but by God's grace, he has given us incredible means of grace to keep his grace and his mercy daily in front of us. Friends, we must never forget that we are only saved by the grace of God and that we are eternally secure in him. Point number two. Stand firm in God's grace. Stand firm. So, so though we love to remember God's grace, we love to remember what he's done for us, it's not always easy to apply God's grace and his peace into our lives. We don't always know what that looks like. This world is hard 
works hard to make God's grace secondary, and it, it works hard to cause us to have identity in other things. There are so many other things happening all around us, it can be difficult to know how do we apply God's grace into our lives. But this is why Peter exhorts us in verse 12. He says, I have written briefly to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That word, this, means all that he has written to us so far. So it includes all five chapters of instruction up until this point. It's, It's not just the theological remembrance of God's grace that is important, but the application of God's grace as well, even even when it's not easy in our lives. This is what it is to stand firm in God's grace. And folks, we've seen this, right? We've seen this throughout this letter that Peter calls us to not just not just rest in and not just celebrate the idea of God's grace, but to be empowered by and to be radically transformed by God's grace as well. We've seen that Peter uses the words good conduct repeatedly throughout this letter. In fact, they might be repeated more than any other words in this letter. Standing firm in God's grace leads to the good conduct that Peter has discussed. It leads to a change in how we live. It leads to radical obedience and radical holiness individually and as a church family. Friends, I I don't think that this is often how we like to think as as Christians. And so it's good that Peter reminds us of it here. Because I think that as as solid, reformed, evangelical Christians who, who love to declare that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is absolutely true and glorious, I don't think that we think enough about how that glorious truth needs to lead to change in our lives. We often think that, that to talk too much about the need for obedience, the, 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 to talk too much about the need to conform our lives to God's will is to become legalistic and to forget the grace of God. But that's not at all what Peter has told us in this letter. No, grace leads to hope and hope leads to holiness. Grace leads to hope and hope leads to change. Grace, grace leads to action. This is the, the, the grittiness of God's grace in our lives. You know, I think that many people... When they think about standing firm in God's grace, they think that it means that they only need to focus on what God has done for them rather than what God requires of them. Because it's understandable, because by definition, grace is God's unmerited favor. It can't be earned. It can't be deserved by our conduct. And so we think that to stand firm in God's grace is to only think about what he has done for us rather than what we are called to do for him. But church, do you know what that makes us? That makes us into statues. And statues are good, I guess. They're they're strong. Statues stand fairly firm. They don't get easily knocked over. But statues also don't do anything. They collect dust. Birds make their nest in the arms of a statue. Church, we are not meant to be statues. No, when Peter exhorts us to stand firm in God's grace, he's calling us to action. And the action is actually what demonstrates that we are truly experiencing the grace of God. We've seen this everywhere in 1 Peter. In chapter 4, verse 1, Peter spoke of how the grace of God through the resurrection, entirely the work of God, entirely the work of Christ on our behalf, it now arms us for action. 
It equips us for the task at hand. We are not statues. We are soldiers. When Peter tells us to to stand firm in the grace of God, he's not thinking of us as standing on some street corner like like a monument in D.C. or in Philadelphia. No, he's calling us to live boldly for him. You know what he's thinking like? He's, he's thinking more like Iron Man from the Avengers, right? Iron Man stood firm in his armor, not so that he could just stand there, but so that he could take action against evil and for good. That's what God's grace is supposed to be for us, right? You know that moment in the Avengers when, when Iron Man hits that button and his, his armor comes, comes flying out and it encompasses him and clothes him and, and prepares him for action? That's what we do when, point number one, we hit the button and we remember God's grace. We are then wrapped in the strength of God's love and favor. We are secure in Him. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. Why? So that we might make every effort. So that we might wage war against sin and death in our own hearts and so that we might fight for justice in this world all around us in appropriate ways. Church, church, how this is needed today, amen? This is what God has called us to in this fallen world and how badly it is needed. Again, in verse 13, notice this. When when, when Peter speaks of she who is at Babylon, he's just speaking about another local church that is likely in Rome where Peter is writing from. It's likely his church, but he's disguising its location by by saying Babylon, likely because of the fear of persecution. Biblically speaking, though, when we read the word Babylon there, it's not not a literal place. We know that it didn't exist when Peter wrote this letter, but a biblical theology of Babylon says that Babylon stands for the enemy. It represents those who are opposed to God's will and to God's people. It stands for those that are against the church. And and that fits perfectly, right, into what Peter has said. Like Israel in the Babylonian exile of the Old Testament, we as the church are exiles in this fallen world. We're living in enemy territory right now. We're not home. We We are on their side. We live in a world where there are still broken homes and abusive marriages. We live in a world where people attack each other and attack the church. We live in a world where the strong still oppress the weak and where there is still crime and police brutality. We we live in Babylon, and listen, folks, Babylon is not a safe place to be. But what Peter encourages us to throughout this letter is to stand firm in God's grace, to rest in his security, not just in, not, not in the security of this world. And we've seen throughout this letter that when we rest in God's grace, that does not lead to passivity, but to action. Confidence in who we are in Christ leads to action in this world for Christ. And so friends, where do you need to take action? Where do you see the the presence of indwelling sin still having a hold in your life? Do you see the presence of pride and anger or laziness or lust still resident within your heart? Remembering God's grace now equips you 
and it arms you to stand against that and to put it to death. Is, is your home broken? Is your marriage breaking apart? As you stand firm in the grace of God, you can be equipped with everything that you need to stand against that brokenness and to pursue reconciliation and healing. Husbands, you are equipped with everything that you need today to grab your wife's hand, to look her in the eye and say, we need help. We're not doing well. We need to talk to others around us and to ask for care and for counsel. Friends, do you really, really, really not like your boss at work? Are you tempted every day at work to speak against him and to slight him? As you stand firm in the gospel and know who you are according to God's grace, you are given everything that you need to deal with that boss in a way that is different from your coworkers. Church, does your heart burn for greater racial reconciliation? When you stand firm in God's grace... You can fight for that in a way that is distinct from the world around you as well. We, we are not supposed to ignore injustice. We should care greatly for those that are oppressed and hurting, but we should do that in a way that is distinct from the world and marked by humility and wisdom, marked by the care and love of our Heavenly Father for those made in His image. This is what it is to stand firm in God's grace. It's not, it's not passive it is to have great ambition and courage to honor the Lord in and through your life, even as you live as elect exiles till the day you get to see your Savior face to face. When the church stands firm in God's grace, good things begin to happen inside of us and all around us. We see Gospel-centered homes grow stronger. We see greater ethnic reconciliation and respect within the local church. We see humble conversations about how to be more holy and how to put sin to death in our lives and how to love one another more fully. When the church stands firm in God's grace, amazing things happen. This is the grittiness of our faith and of God's grace. When we remember what God has done for us and who we are in Him, we will stand firm and we will live for His glory. That brings us to point number three, friends. We must unite around God's grace. It should be no surprise to us that, that Peter ends his letter with another reference to unity. So he encourages us to greet one another with a kiss of love in verse 14, which, though not consistent with social distancing today, is simply a way of him speaking to the need for the, the family bond, the, the unity that we should experience within the church family. And then he ends by saying, peace to all. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He unites us together and he places us equally in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. We are in Christ. This is our greatest identity, and it is our greatest identity together. Church, being exiles in a foreign world, living in Babylon is a difficult experience, but it should not be a lonely experience. According to Peter, we are exiles together. According to Peter, we are a family, we are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
Peter describes us as, as children. We are the beloved. We are brothers and sisters. We have one father together. And our, our togetherness as a church is it's essential to how God wants us to live in this world. Our, our unity is a means of grace to our souls. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. God wants to strengthen your faith through others around you. And our unity glorifies God. Peter says that we are a family in order that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what our unity is. Our our commonality in Christ, our, our unity around God's grace, it's, it's so different from the world's unity because it is only possible for those who have a greater identity in who they are in Christ than in anything else in this world. And that identity in Christ trumps every other identity that this world offers. And so, are we racially diverse? Yes, we are. Do we have different economic situations? Yes, we do. Do we have different family dynamics? Yes. Do we have different political positions? Yes. But Peter ends his letter by telling us to greet one another with a kiss of love. And he tells us that we are all in Christ together. Folks, it's so essential for us today, particularly during this culturally and, and political volatile time that we live in. Our our hearts are going to want to find greater identity in what divides us than in what unites us. But we must not let that be. And in fact, we must allow what unites us, which is the grace of God in the gospel, to strengthen us and embolden us to lovingly and respectfully and patiently deal with what divides us. We, We must deal with our family business together. We have to fight for unity together. Folks, let me just speak to this in a very specific way. Well, first of all, let me say that this applies to all of life within the body of Christ. And so on a smaller scale, if you know that you are doing something that is more a matter of just personal preference, it's not a matter of conviction, it's just something that you prefer, but that is causing disunity in your marriage or in your home or in your fellowship group or in your church, Peter would challenge you. He would exhort you to value the unity that comes from Christ over your personal preferences and just let it go. Unity is more important than your personal preferences. But then what about when our differences come not just from personal preferences, but from personal convictions? What do we do then? Is it even possible? realistically, to be united when we think about important issues and topics so differently from one another. Yes, it's possible. In fact, this is how our unity will proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Our unity glorifies God, not when we're just all exactly the same and and happen to be hugging together and getting along perfectly. No, our unity glorifies God when we are not all exactly the same, when we are very different from one another and feel things differently, but we have the same Savior. And church, we need this vision so badly. We need it. Different perspectives. Different perspectives on how to handle a a pandemic. Whether to wear masks today or or not to wear a mask today. I was talking to Jason earlier last week and he said, listen, if there's anything that should have united our country together, you'd think it'd be a global pandemic. That's a big deal. That should unite. Not here in America. Divides us more than ever before. 
Maybe it's racial tension. The different ways of thinking about how to deal with these, these strange in our culture and the different ways of pursuing change in our culture. As Jason prayed, maybe it's just the, another presidential election. All of these things threaten our unity so much, but we, as the people of God, must not be divided. We must do the, the hard work, and it is hard work, let's be honest, of listening, of seeking to understand, even if we don't agree, and then respecting our brothers and sisters who may think differently than we do. Church, it's possible. It's possible to have people who land in different places in all of these areas. It's possible for us to experience the joy of family unity together, even despite these differences. It's possible to have real affection and respect for each other and to honor one another. Listen, if, if we want this sort of reconciliation in the world around us, we need to begin with our own hearts and with each other with, within the church. And it's possible. I'm currently reading a book by a man named Jonathan Lehman entitled How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. And he makes some really good points about how, as the church, we must not allow ourselves to have a greater identity in any political party than we do around the grace of God within the local church. He, he doesn't say that the, the church should tell members what to believe. We don't think that either. But he does say that the church should be the place that we learn and, more importantly, practice our politic. Here's what he says. It's a very lengthy quote, so bear with me. But it's so valuable. He says this. One of my goals for this chapter is to encourage us all to stop letting our political parties set our political agenda. Even more, we should not conflate our parties with our faith. Instead, I'd encourage us, this is going to sound strange, to switch our primary political loyalties to our local churches. I don't mean the church should tell us how to vote. I mean it's where we learn a true politics. A Christian politic always begins with Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Then, remarkably, a Christian politic should become visible in the life and fellowship of the local church, both in its teaching and in its fellowship. Whether you are a member of this party or that party, the local church is where we learn to love our enemies, forsake our tribalism, and beat our swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. That means to have peace rather than turmoil. And then he says this, and I love it. Here is where we tutor one another in the righteousness and justice of God. We help each other to understand where we're coming from and how God's word applies. He says, here is where the righteousness and justice of God become tangible, credible, and believable for the onlooking nations. He continues, he says, if you claim to care about politics and you are not an active member of a local church, I'm tempted to think you don't understand politics at all. You are like someone who claims to love cars because you play with matchbox cars on the floor making vroom noises. How easy it is to make pronouncements on political policies from afar. He says, get up. Climb inside a real car and turn on the ignition. Join a church and figure out how to love the person who looks different from you or who makes a lot more or less money than you or who even sins against you. Real politics begins not with your political opinions but with your everyday decisions. 
Not with public advocacy, but with personal affections. Not all by your lonesome, but with a people. Christians learn politics in particular as we work for unity amid all the reasons we give one another not to be united. It's in this battle for unity that we should find the inflections and glimmers of the just and righteous order, one that makes the nations envy. And I say amen to that. Amen. The church is not supposed to be a a monolithic group of people all looking and acting and talking exactly the same. It's not supposed to be made up of one kind of person. It's supposed to be diverse. That diversity within the church becomes Ground zero for for change in our lives and for this world. Listen, if you can't come to a better understanding of and even a respect for people in your local church who are different from you, if you can't patiently and respectfully listen and, and fight to understand why they think the way that they think and feel all that they feel, if you can't do that within the church, you, you shouldn't be calling it out elsewhere. We must focus on the person rather than the policy or the practice. Not that those things are unimportant, but we must first focus on the person and what they represent. That they are made in the image of God. And if they are a Christian, they very likely have very valuable, very God-glorifying reasons for believing what they believe and feeling what they feel. Not across the board, not perfectly, but the chances are they've got some good reasons, some good ways of defending what they say. And we should do the hard work to understand and to respect them and their position. Now, sure, your your political opinion may not change in those conversations at all. You may be in the same place afterwards as when you began, but if you engage with brothers and sisters in the local church who think differently than you do, and you ask good questions, and you listen well, And church, I'm not just talking about like two questions and one or two conversations. I'm talking about a lifetime of conversation and a lifetime of listening. If you do that, how you hold your political position will absolutely change. It will shift. How you handle it will be different. You might still have differences from that person, but you will honor Christ as you unite, as you together unite around his grace and his love for his people and not around thinking uh, just the same thoughts. You must unite around God's grace. Friends, let me close with this. Let me close with, with an encouragement and with an exhortation. Redeemer Fellowship, I just want to say how grateful I am to you for, for how well you do this, particularly this third point of uniting around God's grace. Even within the last week with some of the the cultural issues that have gone on, I have seen tremendous effort made by so many of you to love one another and to listen to one another and to seek to understand one another. That has not brought about perfect understanding or, or perfect agreement, but it has honored Christ. And it is what will strengthen us as we move forward as a church family. Don't stop. Don't stop listening. Don't stop asking questions of those who are different from you. Let us respect one another enough to care about these things and to keep the conversation going. And that flows right into the exhortation. Church, we need to fight for this. Our flesh gets the better of us all the time. But Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
He calls us to, to put away all the things that come from our flesh and that divide us. And he calls us to unite around the grace of God. He says, once you were not a people, you were alone and you were in darkness. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy and you are a chosen race and a holy nation. Church, let's fight for this together. God's grace is all that you need in this life, all that you need during this season. And so let us remember it, let us stand firm in it, and let us unite around it.